Do ethics have a place in planning to meet the threat of a pandemic? You're listening to ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Nancy Berlinger. Dr. Berlinger is the Deputy Director and Research Associate at Hastings Center. She has been the co-director for addressing pandemic planning in clinical ethics education and is the author of After Harm, Medical Error and the Ethics of Forgiveness. Thank you, Dr. Berlinger, for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. We're going to be talking about the ethical issues that may arise in a pandemic that may hit our country at any time. But to begin with, could you tell us, what is the National Pandemic Influenza Preparedness and Response Plan? Well, the National Pandemic Influenza Preparedness and Response Plan is the federal government's overall strategy for dealing with the potential for the development of a pandemic flu strain. Now, when we talk about pandemic flu or pan flu or bird flu, we tend to be talking about something that's called H5N1 or avian influenza A. And if you go to the World Health Organization website or pandemicflu.gov, you can read all about bird flu. But what we are preparing for is the potential that a livestock virus that is transmitted largely from animal to animal, and in some limited cases from animals to individuals who handle animals, farmers and people who sell livestock, for example, could mutate into a a form where it is easily transmittable from person to person. The World Health Organization has tracked this virus and is increasingly concerned about it because it's appearing in more countries all over the world and also because the mortality rate is quite high among humans who have been documented as having died of H5N1. So the United States government has crafted a plan over the past few years that identifies the duties of the federal government should there be an avian flu outbreak and has also identified the duties of the states who would be responsible both for coordinating with the federal plan and, of course, for coordinating with the local health authorities who are actually responsible for delivering care because we tend to go to the hospital that is nearest to us and an avian flu outbreak that was transmittable from person to person would put huge pressure on local emergency facilities and local ICUs. Who sits on this plan? It's such a huge network of federal agencies, interlocking agencies, working with state governments, that probably the best way to describe it is that it's under the jurisdiction of the Department of Health and Human Services. They then charged each of the states, generally the State Department of uh, Public Health, Department of Health, some entity in each of the states, to come up with a state plan. And then that is submitted to the Centers for Disease Control, which, as we're probably familiar with, is responsible for things like surveillance and epidemiological monitoring and other aspects of public health. So they would do this in, in no matter what sort of outbreak you might have. So it's many different people and many different federal bodies and federal bodies in coordination with state bodies. I see. Do they divide the responsibilities or are they kind of left it for the states to coordinate a plan and then submit it to them? Well, that's a very good question. The federal plan describes six duties of the federal government, which are surveillance, investigation of outbreaks, so there's a report of something odd going on and the CDC would send in investigators, the development of lab tests to determine which strain of the flu was responsible for the outbreaks, 
vaccine development in response to the identification of a pandemic flu strain, because we, we do have a stockpile of vaccine, but we're not, because of the, this would be a mutated virus, we don't know if anything we stockpile would be effective. The enactment of travel restrictions or quarantines of federal airspace, for example, interstate highway, things that are under federal jurisdiction, and facilitating communications through different emergency broadcast channels. Many of these activities, as you can imagine, would be coordinated by the Centers for Disease Control. Also, it's the role of the president to declare states of emergency in response to requests from governors. So when there's a hurricane or a, or a flood, you always hear about counties or states being under a state of emergency. But that is a part of the federal role there. So a governor would necessarily be in contact with the White House if there was an outbreak in a particular area. And that's particularly important when we talk about switching from normal standards of care to altered standards of care. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Now, under the national plan, the states have duties as well. Identification of public and private sector partners for local planning and local response, coordination with the federal effort, integration of state and federal planning efforts, coordination of local health authorities, data management, and coordination with adjacent states and other jurisdictions. So you can imagine in uh, border states that might involve Canada or, or Mexico as well. But care delivery is largely the responsibility of local planners. So if there's a gap in the federal plan, it falls on the states. And if there's a gap in the state plan, it falls on the local providers. And there's really nowhere else where it can go because that is, is where the care is delivered. So because this is a large country that is very diverse and does not have a universal health care system, our plan would look very different than that of a country like Denmark, for example, which has universal health care and is a much smaller country. We are going to have 50 different plans, and they are going to look very different because of local conditions and also just because of the, the, the degree to which providers in those states are able to work with one another. You bring up a lot of issues, and one that we haven't touched on but we're circling around do they deal with the ethical issues that may arise? And is there even an ethicist sitting at the table? Well, there was a study that was published last year in the American Journal of Public Health that touched on exactly this point. The authors of the study looked at the federal and state pandemic plans that had been published to date. So literally, the, the Department of Health and Human Services gave all of the states an assignment that said, you know, send us your plans. You know, we have to have something on file. And the authors of the study went through all the plans, and they just went looking for ethical language. And they found that the federal template and the scoring criteria that were used did not require the states to be specific about the ethical decisions that might be involved in deciding, for example, who gets a share of a limited resource like a vaccine or an antiviral agent like Tamiflu. So as a result, few state plans contained concrete guidance on how ethical decisions were going to be made during a crisis. There are many different ways we can describe ethical decisions, but we can, we can simply say fair decisions or decisions that anticipated the consequences of actions that we might have to think about now. You know, how would we avoid putting first responders in, into making a crisis-driven decisions? What could we anticipate now? So even look, taking a very narrow definition of ethics and saying, well, a word like fairness or rationing meant that you were thinking about ethics, they said, well, hardly any of the plans said anything about this or offered much as to how you would actually go about it. So you mostly see 
in some states a conversation going on. But it, it may have been because people in those particular states got together and said, you know, I think we're going to have to go beyond the federal requirements for a plan because we can see that there's a, a crisis that could develop here if we don't go beyond the terms of the assignment, as it were, and do some extra credit. So New York State, for example, where I live, the hospitals and the state bioethics task force, the New York State Task Force on Life and the Law, got together and crafted a venticator allocation strategy that provided voluntary guidelines for the fair allocation of what was anticipated would be a very scarce resource because of the fact that it was known that some hospitals had much greater resources than others and they, you didn't want to put the hospitals that didn't have a lot of cash or would anticipate having a large number of patients who might need ventilators at a disadvantage. Now, New York State was perhaps able to do that because it's the only state in the country that has a standing bioethics task force with a professional staff that no matter what administration is in power, it stays in place. But most states do not have a ready-made body to look at questions like that. So there's, some are adapting the New York State plan. Others are putting together ad hoc groups of their own. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Nancy Berlinger, Deputy Director and Research Associate at the Hastings Center. And we're talking about the ethical issues that we may anticipate if there is a pandemic in the United States. Attention has been given to vaccination and antiviral agents, but little attention has been directed towards other things that might be in short supply, and you touched on that, that is ventilators. Some people feel that as high as 50% of all people who need hospitalization to an ICU for influenza may need to be on a ventilator. This certainly puts the first responder in a difficult situation. How is he going to be prepared to meet this kind of stress? This is an enormous question. It is perhaps the single most difficult question for a number of different reasons. First of all, we're talking about a respiratory illness. So obviously ventilators, and not just the machines themselves, but the personnel who operate ventilators and the environment in which you can use a ventilator safely and effectively are going to be an extremely scarce resource in a pandemic situation. So what we must do as a society, as planners, as ethical individuals, as community members, we must avoid shifting the excruciating burden of making a decision about who has access to this particular scarce resource when there are many people with equal claims on this resource we can't shift this onto the burden of the person who is actually providing care. That puts our intensivists in an intolerable situation, and also nurses, respiratory technicians, and others who might be in an ICU in, in that type of situation. Imagine an ICU in which every single patient is on a ventilator. Some models say 50%, others potentially say 100%. Why? Because you could already have some patients in your hospital who are too sick to be released or safely removed from the ICU. So you may have pandemic patients, and you may have other patients who are, who are in your ICU and could not be discharged. So imagine everybody needs a ventilator, and some of the people who are coming in are equally sick. And so how do you decide who gets a ventilator? Do you say first come, first serve? doesn't seem fair, really, because you know that people are still going to keep coming in the door 
and anyone sick enough to be admitted will probably be at least a candidate for a ventilator. These are the people who are too sick to be treated in the ER and in, in, in uh, the initial triage. They, they are actually sick enough to be admitted. So it would appear that there's consensus around the fact that there will need to be some sort of a triage officer role, which really needs to be a triage team. You can't have one person on 24-7 duty. But it would have to include a, a senior clinician with sufficient expertise in that area of healthcare to be able to confer with the, the treating clinicians on individual cases, but also sufficient authority to be able to make decisions and lift that burden off of the treating clinician. I want to thank Dr. Nancy Berlinger for being with us today and discussing this very difficult clinical situation. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157 the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.